the House of Commons debated lowering the voting age in our country to 16. Avian flu causing all kinds of problems in the province of Alberta. We'll chat with the Calgary Zoo and we'll chat with an Alberta poultry producer. And Canada geese. I'm talking about them all week causing all kinds of problems. Earlier this week in the House of Commons, MPs debated a, it's a private member's bill put forward by an NDP MP. The bill would lower the voting age from 18 to 16. Okay, that's what it's talking about. Um, in introducing second reading of the bill, Taylor Backrack, the NDP MP in question, said, and I quote, we should all be concerned that voter turnout in Canada continues to be among the youngest voters, and this bill seeks to improve that by forming voting habits while young people are still in school. Now, I don't know how that premise holds up when you take, I mean, it's not like we continue to do all the things that we learned in school, right? I mean, I guess you spark an interest in school. I'm not sure. Uh, I'm not sure if I go along with uh, that contention. But anyway, let's talk with Valerie Ann Mahale, who uh, is a political scientist at Laval University. Uh, Valerie Ann, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate you joining us today. Thank you for the invitation. You know, we've, we've talked about this before, and it's come up before. I mean, we've talked about this several times in our country. Um, Leader Jagmeet Singh says that lowering the voting age will actually improve our democracy. He says that it's worked around the globe. So are, are we out of step here? Are, are 16-year-olds voting all over the planet? Is this something that's happening more and more often? Well, it's not happening everywhere, but there, there's been like a few countries that have tried this this type of reform, uh, for example, in Scotland for the referendum, in Austria for all types of elections, and they've tried also like some kind of like trial elections in Norway and some other countries. But it's not it's not the case everywhere in all democracies. But it's it's, it's an idea, a reform worth considering. Now, and I guess the main point, and we heard it in, in the House earlier this week, is if you get young people engaged in the process, you create young voters that will carry on through their lifetime. Is that is that what it is, trying to start the interest in the system at a younger age? Yes, yeah, so the idea and the logic behind uh, lowering the voting age to 16 is th- this idea to kind of like get this a democratic habit started earlier on in life uh, while young people are still in school and still living with their parents where they can get like more support to get into this kind of like new role of active citizen, uh, acting citizen in elections. And the idea is that if they start a voting habit earlier on, they will kind of continue to vote uh, later on in other elections. But this argument really depends on the idea of like having the support of parents, families, uh, educators, and schools. So it's an overall change in the thinking. I mean, when you take a look at the other countries that you mentioned, have we seen a dramatic increase in, in young people turning up at the polls? Has it worked the way that argument would says suggest that it might? If we take the, the, the case of Austria, where they did uh, inc- uh, lower the, the voting age uh, to 16-year-olds for all types of elections, and it's been kind of like a, a stable reform. It's been implemented and still going on. So we saw that, like, in the first elections, 16- and 17-year-olds did vote at higher rates than other youth. So, like, they did show up to the poll. And then what they noticed is that there were, like, lasting effects in terms of motivation to get involved in other types of elections uh, at other levels of politics, not just national elections. So there was, like, we did witness some positive effects. 
the only question we have as political scientists is like what, what did cause this increase in 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 turnout and one one thing that we suspect is that there was like a really big momentum around this institutional reform and there were lots of civic education campaigns and there were lots of debates to kind of like you know um uh, encourage young people to show up and vote so my question as a political scientist is like is is this like this increase in turnout was it related only to the reform just right. offering the vote to younger people or was it also due to these civic education campaigns that were really supportive of youth engagement yeah that absolutely i'd be asking the same question along that line critics of this some of them in canada uh, during the debate said the reason it's the ndp that keeps pushing this is because young people are interested in issues typically um, that adhere to NDP policy, climate change, um, housing, things like that. Um, that's why the NDP does this. So is, is there a political component to why certain parties suggest this should happen? Because it would increase their base. Well, I think like, there there are two arguments put forward by, by the NDP from what I heard. One was like really a, um, a reflection about our democracy and how to include more voices, so to increase the number of people who take part in the election, but to also increase, like, um, improve our representation, include more voices and more, uh, consider more interests. And we, we know that young people do have different interests and are worried about different issues than other, uh, other older generations. And, you know, we talk about climate change and the environment, and it is true that younger people are more scared, worried, um, stressed about climate change than uh, older generations. Mm-hmm. And one of, the, one of the point that was put forward by the NDP is that if young people are going to be disproportionately affected by decisions made by government about climate change, then they should have a say. Which is which is a fair point, but definitely there is like also a partisan angle that um, we know that youth are usually more left leaning, are more likely to vote for uh, parties like the NDP and the Liberals, but they do really care about um, issues like climate change, education, funding for uh, both families, and yeah. these are issues that are are taken up by the NDP, for example. Exactly, yeah. Um, Now, this has been legally challenged in our country. Young people have launched legal challenges uh, based on the charter. Um, Those weren't successful, though, correct? Yeah, no, they weren't successful up to now, but there's there's a really, there's a... Um, uh, an argument made by uh, opponents to this reform that uh, there's like the, a, a notion of legal age of majority and then that youth are not politically, politically mature enough to take part in elections. But uh, actually, we, we have data. So I published an article with my colleague Eric Belanger on Quebec, uh, on Quebec data that we actually see that young people, one, are already engaged in politics in diverse ways, mm-hmm. uh, you know, fundraisers, donations, demonstrations, and they do have political uh, political discussions with their with their peers. And they're not less knowledgeable about institutions. Uh, they're sometimes more knowledgeable than adult youth. Uh, they're as politically interested as like you know the, the 18, 20 year olds in Canada, and they're not less motivated to be engaged in in politics. So. Um, why, you know, why marginalize them from, you know, a political opportunity to, you know, take their place in the political community? Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting discussion and one we've had before. So I appreciate you joining us and walking us uh, through all the ins and outs, Valerie Ann. Thanks so much. Thank you very much. Bye-bye.
take a look at what's going on at the Calgary Zoo right now or the Valley Zoo in Edmonton this weekend. If you drop by, you may notice um, birds are missing. They've been they've been moved indoors at zoos and at several other facilities around the province, you know, wildlife conservation centers, putting in extra steps to try and protect their animal life. So, and it's all because of the avian flu. So let's find out what's happening uh, at some of these facilities. Dr. Doug Whiteside is going to join us now. He's the Calgary Zoo's Senior Manager of Animal Health. Uh, Dr. Whiteside, thank you for your time. I appreciate you joining us today. Yes, good morning. So Calgary Zoo, as I said, just one of many facilities around the province forced to try and make some changes to protect birds. Um, what, what are the primary concerns here? What are you protecting against? So because of the uh, nature of the highly pathogenic, even influenza, we know that in birds it causes really high um, illness rates and really high death rates. And for zoos, uh, which have a lot of uh, endangered bird species or threatened bird species, uh, we want to make sure that we're we're giving them maximal protection um, because every individual is critical to the population. Now, you mentioned you know some of the birds. That you're, does this affect all species of bird? Any bird is susceptible to this flu? Yeah, it certainly can affect um, any species of birds. There are certain bird um, taxa that are more susceptible. So we certainly know that our galliform birds, so things like our chickens, um, our turkeys, and um, in, the, in the zoo world, uh, birds that are kind of related to them, like our sage grouse, for example, would be highly susceptible to the virus. And then we know that waterfowl are really susceptible as well. But it has been reported in raptor species and even in some of the, the smaller pastoring species. And this flu, I mean, the reason it's hitting so hard right now is because, like you say, it's the waterfowl, we believe, that's carrying it during the migratory period. Do I have that right? What's your understanding? Yeah, that is correct. Yeah. So what's happening is as the waterfowl are migrating back uh, up to their northern uh, summering grounds, um, they are uh, bringing the virus with them. And, um, you know, and a lot of waterfowl species, the ones that have survived, um, it doesn't, you know, they may have no clinical signs, but they can certainly easily pass on the virus to susceptible species. And that's certainly what we're seeing uh, with our poultry farms, for example, where we're seeing really high um, illness and death rates associated with it. Um, at the zoo, and, and as I said, Edmonton Valley Zoo making the same kinds of changes, what kind of um, action have you had to take to protect uh, the birds there? Yeah, so uh, you know, all the zoos in, in North America are taking very similar approaches. Uh, so what we've done is, as much as possible, we've moved birds into their indoor spaces uh, to pre- protect them from interacting with wild birds. We've also eliminated a lot of the water bodies that we have um, at the zoo in terms of our ponds and, and streams and things like that uh, to limit the amount of waterfowl that will actually hang around the zoo, the wild waterfowl, and making sure that there's no um, chance for interaction with wild birds and our zoo birds, you know, by, by eliminating feed stations outside, making sure that all birds are fed indoors. Doctor, is there, and this may be a dumb question, is there any medical remedy here? I mean, I'm thinking vaccination or, or you know, some sort of treatment of the flock, or I mean, it sounds like euthanasia is what's being done now once a flock's infected. Is there any kind of medical intervention available at all here? So, you know, in the case of, of the poultry industry, that's, uh, that's the approach that they take to, to protect um you know, the, the food industry. Uh, in, a, in the zoo world, you know, we would, if we did have an infected bird, we would try to treat um, if possible. Um, but right now there is no uh, effective vaccines available to us uh, to protect our birds. Um, good question from one of our listeners, because I've seen this in some of the media reporting. Do we need to bring in our bird feeders? Some people are saying that bird feeders are something that you should be aware of if you have them in your yard. They could be part of a problem here. 
That's correct, yeah. So what uh, what we've been recommending as well is uh, that people just eliminate their bird feeders and their bird baths for now uh, during the migration season um, because what these uh, things, things do is they allow birds to congregate together and it makes it easier for them to pass on the virus from one bird to another. How long do you anticipate this lasting? When we talk about this migratory period, is this going to be over in a couple of weeks, a couple of months? Uh, so what we're hoping is that, you know, the migratory season will end usually by mid and May. And then uh, within the next four to six weeks, we should see uh, hopefully a rapid decline um, in the virus. How, sorry to hold you, but how, how does that work? Because if the sick birds are arriving here as part of their migration, won't they be here? Why, why does the illness, I mean, it's harsh to say, is it because they die? That's correct, yeah. So, the, the, you know, the birds that... Um, you know, the birds that are, are highly affected uh, by the virus will, will pass away. And the ones that um, you know, are clinical, you know, hopefully there's enough of a dilution effect um, that we won't see it persist. And the ones that survive develop antibodies against the virus. Why is Alberta being hit so hard? I mean, we're, we're almost two to one over the next closest province being Ontario. Yeah, it's just uh, it's very interesting. I think you know, part of it is we haven't seen a virus like this in Alberta before, so we certainly have um, you know populations of birds that are much more susceptible uh, to the virus, um, as well as you know just in terms of um, birds that might be coming up through the flyway uh, that might have the virus. Interesting, uh, Dr. Whiteside. I can't thank you enough for your time today. I really appreciate it. Okay, thank you. Have a good afternoon. You too. That's Dr. Doug Whiteside, who is um, with the Calgary Zoo. Uh, the senior manager of animal health there, uh, walking us through uh, some of the things they've had to do. And like I say, you know, there's other media reports that the Edmonton Valley Zoo is taking the same sort of steps, uh, different wildlife centers, basically trying to isolate their birds from wild birds, basically is what it comes down to in a lot of ways, you know, keeping them inside, things like that. Uh, it's, it's, it's very, very serious. And as I say, I mean, uh, we've lost almost a million birds um, on avian flu this season so far already in Alberta. And the next closest is Ontario, and they've only lost 425,000. So we're more than two to one when it comes to uh, the loss of our population. And I I don't know if it's slowing down or what the timeline is, but uh, the biggest impact obviously is on poultry producers. That's who's lost the 900,000 birds. I mean, I'm not talking about wild birds. I'm talking about, you know, poultry producers in in our province have had to use 900,000 birds. Bird flu has now been confirmed in a number of different areas in the province. Um, confirmed Sunday. Listen to this, kid. Small flock in the county of Two Hills. Sarah's from Two Hills. So now she has to be careful of the bird flu. Uh, also detected in Wainwright and in Lethbridge County. Uh, it was first detected last month and has continued to spread, as I said earlier. Uh, according to the Canadian Food Inspection Agency, Alberta has now lost almost a million birds so far, 900,000. That was in the latest update that came out yesterday, which is up uh, from 600,000 last week. Ontario is the next hardest hit province in the country, but less than half as many birds lost, 425,000. Um, so uh, Alberta certainly taking the brunt of this uh, avian flu outbreak. Uh, let's get an update on what's happening uh, when it comes to avian flu and poultry producers in our province. Jeff Notenbomer joins us. He's a farmer and chair of the Alberta Hatching Egg Producers. Jeff, uh, we've talked before. Thanks for joining us once again. I appreciate your time. Thank you, Shay. It's good to speak with you. Yeah, some of the no- uh, news that we're reading about this avian flu situation, last time we spoke was middle of April and we were concerned and worried about where it might lead. It looks like it's 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 just gotten worse and worse and worse week after week, correct? That is correct. It's uh, it's continuing to spread across the province. 
Um, when we talk about where it's being in Alberta, is it is it north, south, east, west, everywhere in Alberta right now is dealing with this? Yes, we are dealing with it everywhere in Alberta. What um, What is the situation in terms of how quickly it's spreading and how many birds are being lost? When I say birds are lost, that's cold. What happens when a poultry producer like yourself gets avian flu into the flock? What is the outcome? What happens? So when the, uh, when the farmer notices that there's um, a difference in his flock in behavior or increased mortality, we get those birds tested. And if those birds uh, test positive, um, then CFIA uh, gives a destruction order and uh, they come in and uh, euthanize those birds. And also, if you are in a, a 10-kilometer zone of a positive farm, then there are... Uh, standard operating procedures that CFIA does to monitor all those farms that are uh, within that 10-kilometer zone. There's a lot of rules, there's a lot of permitting, a lot of different things that the farmers have to do. And you have to be very careful about people coming on and off the farm, right? I mean, there's all kinds of rules around that too. Yes, there's all kinds of rules about biosecurity. Biosecurity is what we do as farmers to uh, protect our animals from uh, outside uh, diseases or, you know, things like the bird flu. Um, you know, changing our clothes, changing our boots, uh, watching traffic, just controlling everything, feed, bedding, uh, anything that can uh, touch outside and also uh, come into the barn. Um, and then we're hearing, and this is part of the migration patterns that happen with birds, and it's uh, it's coming into the province that way. Um, how, how do the fox get infected? You know, I have questions about that too. Um, we know the obvious ones. The obvious ones are, of course, if you walk outside and you, there's, there's material on the ground that you step in and then you walk in the barn, that's okay. an easy way to do it. But that's, you know, farmers are, are protecting themselves against that. So, um, you know, how is it spreading? Uh, we have a lot of concerns as farmers. How is it spreading? And we're not exactly sure. You know, they, CFIA says there's not um, transmission from an infected farm, um, you know, to farms neighboring it. But um, we're very concerned. Um, personally, your operation, has it been impacted by this yet? No, I, I am not positive for avian flu. And I say yet, do you anticipate that you will be just based on how this seems to be spreading? Uh, we're doing our best to keep everything uh, clean and safe. I Personally, I'm in a spot where I have no other poultry farms around me, uh, so that makes me uh, feel a little better. I do feel for my fellow producers who are in more dense areas where um, their neighbours are quite close by. Jeff, uh, just getting texts from people, does this mean we're not going to have chickens and turkeys? I mean, we're, we're talking about almost a million birds culled to this point. Um, I, I guess we don't, we don't have a crystal ball. We don't know what the future holds. But are we at a point where we're going to start seeing a reduction in the amount of poultry that's being produced that we'll notice on store shelves and the rest? Um, as we get more positives, it gets more difficult to... Uh, to keep things moving. Uh, we are supply management, so uh, we work very closely together as farmers and processors to uh, fill uh, any holes and fill any gaps um, caused by um, uh, birds that are euthanized. And of course, there's different industries and the different industries are affected uh, differently. Of course, we have turkey, eggs, yeah. and meat. Um, but, uh, you know, at this time, we're still working hard to um, to make sure that uh, uh, that there is no uh, supply shortages. Yeah, and uh, and like like you say, I mean, we don't know exactly how this is virus is going to play out, so we can't make any predictions. Uh, Jeff, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate you joining us. Is that a 
control here, ladies and gentlemen. We've got an issue with these geese, just some of the stories that um, you guys are sharing, which is really good. Brian says, um, he sent some pictures saying, here's a goose that laid two eggs on our cardboard recycle pile outside of our warehouse in Calgary. She made an S, so now apparently she is protected and can't be moved. She recently killed a magpie that was trying to get to her eggs. Yeah, that, that's my understanding, Brian. You're absolutely right. Like if a goose lands in your backyard and makes a nest there, it's now their backyard. And there's nothing you can do about it. And we've seen all kinds of stories where they establish themselves outside of businesses, fire halls, you name it. And once they're there, they're there. And it's theirs because they're protected. Listen to this story. Greg says, Shay, I was attacked by a goose walking by the shore at Sundance Lake in the southeast in April of last year. A goose that was in the water put its head down and its wings out and flew at me. I turned and ran. My wife laughed, but (laughs) but then I was hit in the back by its beak. I had a bruise in the center of my back for two weeks, not to mention when the bird hit me, I hit the ground. I weigh 180 pounds, and this thing knocked me down. I will gladly bring a baseball bat to a goose fight. Um, We've all been hissed at. We've all been howled at. I walk through Gold Bar Park in Edmonton quite regularly, and there's two geese that have established themselves there. Um, quite close to the path. And, yeah, you walk by, and they, they get all back up, and, you know, and then they hiss. Cobra chickens. So we call them. They're, they're ill-tempered. They can be mean. They can attack you. And, you know, if you're a small child or you're an, a pet, it, it's not, it, I mean, it's, we, we're laughing because Greg got knocked down and got a bruise on his back, and it's kind of funny to see a grown man running from a goose. I understand, but, it, you know, it, it's dangerous, It really, really is. So the question is, what do we do? What can we do? Is there anything that we can do? There are efforts. There are things that are done to try and control this. But, I mean, right now, this time of year, it doesn't matter where you are in the country, there's a whole lot of geese all over the place. And um, what do we need to do? First of all, should we do anything? Second of all, if we want to do something, what should we do? We're going to chat with um, Liz White now. Liz is the president of the Animal Alliance of Canada, leader of the Animal Protection Party of Canada. Liz, thank you so much for joining us today. I appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Do you have a goose horror story? I think we all do, don't we, as Canadians? I actually don't have a goose horror story. I have a really nice goose uh, goose story, and that is I attended a court hearing um, for a number of years, and consecutively over those years at the courthouse, a goose laid a nest in a planter yes. about 20 feet from the door and, of course, went after people who came near exactly, uh, not quite as you're saying, but similar. And instead of the courthouse doing something negative, they put a bunch of, like, yellow tape yep. around it and had people say, please give this goose lots of space. And so for the three years that I went there, she raised her young. I've seen that happen at a number of businesses, and they sort of almost become celebrities, Liz. People come to know exactly. these geese, and uh, you're right. You're absolutely right. Um, so first of all, do you think we need to do something to change, if not reduce the numbers but or, or direct them to different areas? People saying they're, they're really establishing themselves extremely well within cities, and some of them don't even migrate anymore. Do we need to have, for lack of a better term, a goose policy in this country, or just leave it as it is? Well, geese, geese are protected under the Migratory Bird Convention Act because they are in, they do in fact migrate even if they don't migrate 
the way they used to. Yes, right. And they don't do that because of human activity. It's not because the geese don't migrate. It's because we've provided sanctuaries for these geese in urban areas. And so um, I, with municipalities, what we recommend, so there's two times when you need to have some sort of policy with regard to geese, tolerance, signage, etc., is during when they're laying eggs. And if there's a real problem, um, you can apply to the um, Canadian Wildlife Service for a permit to oil the eggs or to addle the eggs so that the bird sits on the nest, but there are no young that attend. And in many cases, you can also use dogs to disrupt the geese and have them not feel very comfortable where they're actually trying to build a nest. So it's it's a non-lethal uh, way of doing it, and in many areas, that's exactly what people do. The second is that geese come to municipalities when they're molting, and that's when they can't fly. And a lot of municipalities do goose management when they can't actually make the birds leave, which yeah. is, 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 a, is contraindicated. So um, what we recommend is, is if you have what geese want is a um, safe place, which is water, and a good, easy, accessible food source, which is grass. So if you have a place where you have a big pond or a riverbank and you have grass down to the edge, you need to change that. And you need to put in bushes and stuff so that the geese can't see whether there's any predators there. And then they don't want to be there because the the best thing is to, to be able to walk out of the water onto the grass and eat and know what predators are around because they're vulnerable because they can't fly. So there are, in fact, solutions to these uh, particular situations. It just requires councils take a little bit different approach we are under the assumption that if we just shoot a few or we move them around um that things are going to get better and in fact uh they don't um and you need to deal with the problem from a preventive point of view um the attempts to reduce numbers i'm sure you've heard of it replacing eggs oiling eggs these sorts of things um are those credible plans in your mind they're, they're credible plans in the sense that what you're trying to do is to take... Geese can be very nest tenacious and location tenacious. So if you make it un, um, uncomfortable to be in those places with dogs and the, they don't actually reproduce, you get them to move elsewhere. And if you have a, a broader plan in a municipality, that might help to reduce that. Um, but... Uh, it doesn't reduce the population. We kill um, in North America about, I think, about 3 million geese a year, maybe a little less than that. I can't remember the exact number, so don't hold me to it. But sure. it's a very high number, and the population has, has um, maintained its numbers. So clearly, oiling eggs, replacing eggs, you know, is not going to reduce the number. When you say kill them, is that through efforts of control, or does that include hunting and, and all the rest? That's just straight hunting. Okay, gotcha, gotcha, okay. Yeah. Um, is it, is it, I mean, I know Vancouver has all kinds of problems. I know Alberta's talked about it. Um, is anybody showing, is there a plan that people can look to, and is anybody following the plan and can sort of say, hey, look, we're doing this and it works? Yeah, there's, there's a number of municipalities that have decided to 
um, look at non-lethal actions towards the birds uh, in Mississauga, where they were a number of years ago in Toronto, where they outside of Toronto, where they were actually going to um, round the birds up and uh, and send them off for slaughter. Um, that got stopped, and so they moved the birds. I don't think that that's a very good idea. I don't think it's healthy for the environment or for the birds or for the municipalities where you're taking these birds because it also causes problems in other municipalities and you don't want to do that. So, um, But in certain areas, in certain municipalities, they um, uh, celebrate the birds. Yeah. Um, in some municipalities, they have machines that pick up the poop and commercialize it for fertilizer. So, you know, there are there are areas where people have decided that they don't want to kill them. They want to be able to celebrate them and figure out how best to do that. And that's what we're advocating. I just sent you a link to our goose mitigation yeah. manual that shows how you do, how you build uh, riparian edges so that um, the geese are, you know, their vision is blocked, so it prevents them from wanting to be there when they're molting. Um, it's But, you know, most municipalities, the problem is that most municipalities do not understand the bird biology. They don't understand which, what, at what time they're dealing with the birds, and at one time they're, they can't fly. So, you know, you look at this and you think um, it's, it's like a, if you can just shoot them, or round them up and kill them, then the problem will go away. And as we know from most municipalities, the problem never goes away when you do that. So it seems like you want to spend your money on something that's going to work. Well, there you go. Yeah, absolutely. That makes perfect sense to me. Um, Liz, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, A great conversation. I appreciate it very much. Thank you. Have a good day. You too. That is Liz White, president of the Animal Alliance of Canada and the leader of the Animal Protection Party of Canada. Very knowledgeable. That was, that was a good conversation. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.